You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys, episode number 96 for Monday the 1st of January 2018. And a very happy new year to you if you're listening to this on the day of release. My guest on the podcast today is Michael Andale, who's best known as the creator of the Cutherian Gambit series and the wonderful 20 Books to 50K Facebook group. He published his first book, Death Becomes Her, on November the 2nd, 2015, and earned, wait for it, $6. He wrote and published two more books in November of that year and generated Amazon royalties of $427 for the month. Between the December and January following, he published two more books, then went on to generate Amazon royalties of over $10,000 using Facebook ads to get things going. The rest is the stuff of legend. Michael now collaborates with multiple authors and earns them and him multiple thousands of dollars from book sales in the process. When I spoke to Michael for the podcast, I asked him what life events resulted in him moving from his day job to writing that very first book. So I uh, was 47-ish at the time, and I've been a lifelong reader. And in doing so, you know, I've read thousands of times, and it was always a bucket list item. But my oldest son, Joshua, is someone who's written ever since he was in, like, junior high and stuff. And and so kind of what's going on is my personality is willing to get out there and go do something. His is a little bit more reserved. And I decided, you know, half for me is a bucket list item just to do something, and half for him to understand how it's done so I could tell him I started Death Becomes Her and started writing it. And I knew as a whale reader that I wanted at least three books out there before I could advertise anything for it. And so I was already committed to doing three books. And, uh, you know, once I got started, I had a, just a handful of fans saying, you know, let's go. You know, I was already writing book four because by the, in between books two and three, I had figured out that at the sales I was doing at that moment, then I would actually be able to make $50,000 if I had to finish you know, 20 books and made $7.50 each a day. And that was my new goal. I think the maths, we'll delve into the maths of that in a moment or two, because I think the maths that are fascinating, uh, the thought behind the 20 books concept. Um, were you doing a day job when you started that writing? I had a, my own company. It was a consulting company, Simple Steps IT. And what I did is I integrated online and offline sales. So you're talking about creating websites and or uh, the sales flow of a sales funnel between it and working with the offline sales or the salespeople to understand what are the frequently asked questions they would have and how could we minimize their sales experience. So you're a big reader and you've got some sales experience, which is quite a good start, isn't it? Yes, actually, it was a really good start. <laughs> and so how did you put that into practice? Having done that first book, um, how did you then use that experience to say, right, that's rather than this just sitting there gathering dust like most people's first book does, what steps did you take to make sure it didn't do that? I, um, when I started writing and everything, I really had no idea what the indie author community was all about. So I had not visited K boards or anything like that. I was merely using my experience in life. Plus my experience as a, a voracious reader and knew what I wanted. Um, as an older person, I also understood, you know, if that 3% chance happened, then you were able to hit a home run. I concerned, or I was concerned with whether or not I might get burnout. So I created this multi-genre epic. When we looked at, you know, book one came out, I finished it up. I released it November 3rd. We were in the middle of NaNoWriMo. So I just jumped on Nano. I had my second book out nine days or like seven, eight days later. And then, you know, I, I pushed into book three as we were writing Cabo and everything else that was going over there. So we just had a lot of opportunity going around. And it wasn't that I did anything in particular other than just carrying the story forward and not doing some of the things that annoyed me with series in the past and just driving, you know, to the next book. My third day of sales was 97 cents. It's not like I started out of the gate being truly successful. But when I saw that the second book had given me, you know, 12 to $14 and a little bit more. And I was averaging that $7 a day. It gave me enough to go, hey, you know, I can do this. And if I'm able to make it with a little bit, just a little bit more money, I don't have to 
um, respond to people being upset because their Facebook ads aren't working, for example. The other thing I think is interesting about your story is that you you kind of seem to have popped out like a born writer. So, you know, a lot of writers will say, oh, I'm, I'm there for a year struggling with my first book. You seem to have just sat down and got on with it. Was it that easy for you? Uh, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I write like I want to read. And I paid attention the year before I was writing about all of the books I enjoyed. And a lot of them were indie published books. A couple of them were a situation where, you know, it's like, hey, I can write as good as this. And that really was the simplest. Like, that's all. It's just all I need to do is be able to hit this quality. And so I do certain things in my writing that the Chicago Manual style will never appreciate. We will probably go down as Darth Vader versus Luke Skywalker in our attitudes sometimes. But it is that that's yes, I just started writing that way. Now, some of the things you do, uh, I know some people find quite frightening, don't they? So, for instance, when you release the books, I think they had a few spelling errors in and things like that. And, and, and the purists will say, oh, you can't possibly publish a book like that. Well, what's your view on that? Because you, you get the work done, don't you? That's the other thing. Yeah. Well, um, I, had a, I come from the IT background, right? And in the IT background, there was something we called a minimally viable product. And its intent was that you find what the core feature set, a particular set of customers might want and test to see whether or not they would be willing to spend money on it. That's what it truly means. It doesn't mean put out the crappiest product you possibly can. So I was, what I thought I was doing was putting out the minimally viable product to see was the story resonating or what did I need to fix? Because I certainly thought I would need to fix something. I did not spend a lot of money on my covers, although I could have because I didn't know if, you know, I didn't want to invest money to lose it. And on the Grammarly stuff, part of it is I am so impatient. And this isn't something that I've thought about it since then. And, and I know that if now me could go back to then me and encourage that person to do editing, I wouldn't take that opportunity to do it because it would have caused me such frustration to getting the piece completed that I would have not done it and I would have missed this. And while it was um, it was not debilitating, but it was certainly challenging to overcome the grammar inaccuracies of that first book. It gave me enough hope that maybe I could do this that allowed me to progress. And then, of course, I've reinvested tons of money back into proper editing, proper covers and the rest of it. And that, uh, going back to your analogy about software, is uh, iterative. I think we call this iteration, don't we? Yes. And iteration yeah. is just improving as you go along and improving where you see faults and errors? True. Actually, I mean, that's, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that we do in my company and with all the collaborators is we go back and we look at our books and we find out, is this not performing the way we think it is? Did we miss it with our covers? And if so, we'll turn around and reinvest. If you look at like the Terry Henry Walton uh, covers, um, you know, we had to throw away two or $3,000 in, in cover expense to redo all of those. And so we're doing it again with another set of covers in the age of madness. We're looking at these going, okay, um, covers that we have on, let's say, Justin Sloan in our, my book. We went through and, you know, successful series and we could just let it lay there. But no, we're going back and reinvesting and doing this iterative approach to refresh it. Um, Martha Carr and I on the uh, Lyra Chronicles, we, she and I had this discussion six weeks ago. So this isn't something, you know, we did a year ago, six weeks ago. Uh, we looked at it and she went back to book zero, book one, looked at her writing then versus her writing now and decided she would re-edit, add more information, put the two back together, re-release it as book one. So we iterate all the time on our products and we look at it to see, is it not doing what we think it's doing and why? And sometimes we know that it's a pain in the neck and it's so emotionally not gratifying to go back and do this sometimes, but we still make time to do it. But, you know, that's a really interesting attitude and point of view because it almost means that um, you don't ever fail. It means you could always pick yourself up, brush yourself down and give something another edit, uh, give it a rewrite, give it a new cover. It doesn't actually fail. It just didn't actually succeed. Correct. I think that's very true. And I think now, having said that, it, we would, might make a judicious decision to say that particular series didn't come out as strong and it would take a lot of effort versus, re, you know, just doing another one. And so, I mean, we could make that decision, but to your point, we could always go back and do it again. I, that's just certainly from my background of IT, 
knowing full well that this is digital. And the reason I didn't put out audio for the, I mean, a long time, even after I've had some of the night, you know, some of the big name companies come and ask me is because we were still iterating on those first books. Now, how long are you writing the books? Were you strategic about the book length? Yes, I was. So I knew that from a standpoint of getting the most product out there, I needed to have, you know, zero words, or I could do a million words and only get one book every year or two. And so trying to find the genres I wanted to work in, I looked around to find out what are the lengths, and I came up with 70,000 words. If I had to do again, I might switch down to 60,000 words, but I understand that K-E-N-P, of course, those books that make the most money are the ones where I go past 70,000 and still have the readership. And especially on book one, if you have something that's really powerful and you can, you know, go from 60 instead to 80,000 words, your money on that first one's going to matter because that's the one everyone will read, bar none, right? So it, it's, it's not as good of a situation to have 60,000 on book one and then you have a 70% read through rate and get 80,000 on book two. What about the, the, the pricing? So you're, you sound like you're, price, you're writing to reads rather than pricing for sale there. Is, is, is that true or is there a bit of both in there? Uh, it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, I started at 299 because when I kicked out stuff two years ago, that was a little bit more of a prevalent uh, pricing strategy. About February, March, which is about five months into my experience in 2016, um, KE&P, you know, they just kept dropping. And so I had, was looking around at all of the information that was going on, and everyone was saying no real difference between 299 and 399. Uh, I was speaking with Rick Walteri at that time, and he was telling me, dude, you just go ahead and do it. It's not going to cause anything. So I just changed my pricing to 399. And it was true. I didn't see any issues with people purchasing at that price. Now, having said that, with as many books as we have in the universe, I don't want to go to 499 for various reasons, one of which is, I'm very aware that a lot of our fans are on um, uh, fixed income. So that extra dollar, while it might theoretically be nice to us, it doesn't change our future that much, but it can change theirs a whole lot if they're buying 10 books a month. How did you go about choosing your genre and how strategic was that decision? I happen to like vampire, not more vampire. If you want to say team vamp versus team where I'm a, a vampire guy. So I love that side of paranormal. I enjoyed now like the time frame for military uh, stuff. And I liked near earth and I liked far earth. So what I looked at it is, is like, I, I just thought, you know, isn't the off chance this happens to be successful. You know, you get that pie in the sky sort of thinking whenever you start a new project. I really don't want to be stuck writing something that I'm not going to enjoy. And so I took the components that I enjoyed reading and that I knew that I would like to write eventually and created a story that had all of the components in it. And then I built a relatively large arc. Uh, I would not suggest 21 books just as a note, but um, that's kind of how I ended up with this multi-genre. And then, of course, my sales experience told me that I needed to give them a cover that didn't confuse them. And so I spoke or I stuck with the kind of urban fantasy paranormal in the beginning for the first seven books. Yeah, I noticed um, I found a, a brilliant uh, article and uh, this must seem so long ago to you now, January the 22nd, 2016, the article that you um, created for the author biz when you were on that uh, podcast. Mm -hmm. And um, I found one of your early Facebook adverts and you're using a lot of human models there was that stock photography then or was that um were you actually using the models get the models photographed um at that time it was stock photography in summer of 2016 we had a model, model shoots with helen diaz and you know we pretty much do most model shoots now well and is it very expensive to do that it can be so in pounds of course for us americans it's always more expensive and Going forward, let's say that it cost um, four fifty for a model shoot, just just photography effort, probably for about four hours. Another hundred, and this is all in quid, I should say. Uh, another hundred and fifty to do the studio. The models themselves can be anywhere from a hundred to seven hundred and fifty. That's each, and then uh, a makeup artist is another two fifty to three hundred. So you start adding all of that up, and you, you know one model shoot could be two thousand. And and what's a model shoot like? I mean, I, I I've um, I follow a great. Um 
cover creator online and he does these wonderful things where he shows you the model and then how that how they're cut out and how they end up on a cover and it's amazing by the time they put the coloration in and change the clothes and things it's incredible so you're just taking lots of shots of people in different sort of configurations different stances things like that correct yeah we could do like a link to it but you know we'll have uh, and now we typically have a thousand model shots of maybe three or four outfits at most sometimes two and they're doing everything from standing and posing this way to now we have them jumping, dodging, you know, flying, you know, literally just jumping in the air. Um, if there's a couple, then there'll be, you know, holding each other in some, not holding each other in others, single, double. It goes all over the place. But, you know, a thousand shots, you can get quite a bit. We don't try to now we will match face with body, but it's not our preference to do that. So how true is it to say that with these model images that really, uh, to a certain extent, you could put any configuration of models on and it's really just the atmosphere and the feel that the cover creates that's most important? Um, I don't necessarily think so. Because, well, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I'd like to specify that like with Helen Diaz, when I looked at her, I mean, she's a very beautiful woman, but I was looking at her eyes. You know, that was what was so important to me is to convey her attitude. And when I was going from model to model to model, and a slightly funny story related to that is most of our models are female. Great. I'm a guy. I'm in Texas and I'm eating at this Tex-Mex place. And for another particular series, I'm having to look at guys. Now I'm looking at all these guys and these are all these guys are sitting there buff as in, you know, lots and lots of skin. And I'm going through these things, looking at these guys and trying to figure out who to do for Terry Henry. And then I realized that people could be behind me looking at my <laughs> My PCs, you know, my laptop screen going, why is this guy looking at half naked gentlemen, you know? And I'm like, oh, Lord. <laughs> I've had a similar thing today, actually. I've been taking pictures of people at work and I've got too many pictures of of middle-aged men on my phone. And I was thinking, I've got to delete these things. You know, people are going to get the wrong ideas. <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, it's a go ahead. I feel your pain was all I was going to say. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's some things. I mean, every every time you get authors together, they're all each talking going. I know the NSA, which here in America is the National Security Agency, knows, you know, that they're paying attention to what I'm researching all the time. Because we're all trying to figure out how to kill someone uniquely, right? <laughs> yeah. The, the, you, when you started your um, series, you, you had an arc. You knew you were going to write three books um, from the offset. Mm, uh, so how long did it take to get those out, those three books, the first three? Um, I guess I, I'm a little bit vague. So let's say it took uh, three to four weeks max to write the first book. Second book was a week. Third book was another 11 or 12 days. Wow. So you're shifting some words in a day. What, what roughly is that word count in a day? Um, probably, you know, 10,000 on average. Wow. And that takes you how long to do that? Uh, well, right. I can tell you my, like, my, no, my, my numbers now are about 1,000 to 1,200 for 30 minutes of writing. If I'm focused and I'm not trying to guess or research something, and so to hit that word count, uh, do you do you plan or is it quite a stream of consciousness? The um, the the stories. Once I got to book three, I was starting to write out major points I had to hit on like the back of an envelope type of situation. And by book five, I was researching how can I create beats appropriately, and I found Russell Blake's article on that, and so. Uh, that helped refine my method of doing beats on spreadsheets. And yeah. so I know, like, here are the arcs, here are the major, you know, uh, items each scene has to occur. And then, like, this latest book, I went through the process, and then at the end, it was going to be a lot of ships flying around, and this was going to go on. And so I had to write a more detailed uh, outline as to what was going to occur so I could just stop wondering and start writing. Yeah, it's interesting. As I've refined my process now, when I go into a writing day, I have a couple of lines about each chapter. So I know I hit the ground running, basically. I'm not there scratching my head trying to yes. figure it out, which sounds like you're doing something similar there for the sounds of it. Yeah, I mean, I love the beats themselves, but sometimes the beat is we have a fight between this particular Navy and this particular Navy. And you're like, well, great. Well, how many ships is that? And you're going to do, you know, it's just just the wondering of it causes me more confusion. So I'll break it out into particular scenes. And then that helps me get into the zone of, oh, I can write now. And are you a, a time management enthusiast? Do, when, when you do this writing, you're clearly shifting a lot of words. Interesting that you've boiled down your word count. You know how many words you write per half hour. Is there any kind of method to this system that you use? Are you using Pomodoro, for instance? 
I'm, although that, yeah, it does come from Pomodoro, but um, I don't. Uh, usually it is me freaking out that I need to get a book out. Um, LMBP and my company, we publish anywhere from 12 to 15 books a month. And so there's a lot of my time spent doing these other publishing duties. So as an example, when we had the 20 Books to 50K conference here last week, I didn't want to have to be responsible for doing anything, even though on Friday, the opening day of the conference was November 3rd, two years to the day I had uh, released my very first book. I wanted my 19th book to come out. So the week before, I had 50,000 words to do. I had you know a week to get it done. So that's what I had to do. Let's dig into the numbers then, because, you know, 20 books to 50K, it's legendary now. It's, um, you know, I, I have to say, I've been in a couple of groups and I, and yours is the one I'm, I'm focusing on all the time now. It's where the best material and best content's coming from, in my opinion. So thank you. I, I, it's, it's really great. It's a great service. So thank you for that. Uh, I, I'm interested when the, the penny first dropped for you, when you saw the numbers and you thought, right, this, this is just a mathematical formula. You put so many books in, you'll get so much out. Yes. Now, uh, okay. So the very first day, I think I made, I don't know, four or five bucks, three bucks, whatever it was. And it went down to 97 cents and it came up. And then I released book two. So remember this time frame was in 2015, November 3rd. First book comes out November 11th. Second book comes out. And so we're only talking like eight days later. Between book two and book three, I go down to Cabo San Lucas and my wife was in Las Vegas doing something. So I had time. I'm writing. I'm really enthused, and I start looking at the numbers, and I go, well, let me pull a spreadsheet up. A spreadsheet, no, not spreadsheets, but, yeah, I know. Just uh, Anyway, so I pull it up, and I start looking at it, and I, I do a quick one that says one book out, two book out, three book out, and I rolled it down to 20, and then I started playing with 550 a book, 650 a book, 750 a book, so on and so forth, and I start looking at it going, well, you know, could I get 20 books out by the end of 2017? That was my thought, right? And I'm like, well, I just did, th- you know, two in the space of three weeks, four weeks apiece. And assuming that it goes slower later, that it's not as enthusiastic or whatever. Um, I'm like, yeah, I can get 20 books out by the end of 2017. And so I said, well, it's seven dollars, seven and a half dollars, seven and a half a book a day. And I was just about cracking that. I could make fifty four thousand dollars. And in Cabo, we were in a very nice location and they are building condos. And so we were looking at the condos, deciding what we wanted to do. The house in Texas, you know, versus the house or the condo in in Mexico was the same price. Um, But the difference is the taxes in Texas, our taxes were at least $1,000 a month. And it kind of pissed me off to think that if we were going to retire, that with that house paid off, not a penny owed on it, then Texas was going to require $1,000 before I could eat, you know, before I could even get anything else. And then, of course, you tack on water, electricity, and everything else. Well, in Cabo, so you're talking this beautiful location, the sea is in front of you, this amazing condo uh, in this, it's it just a completely different lifestyle. As the condo costing the same amount of money was going to cost maybe $600 a year in taxes. And I'm like, huh. So I checked out the other costs, and I'm finding out that not including food, it would cost me $1,000 to live a month in that beautiful condo. And so I set it up going, you know, we can make this happen. It's 20 books. I'll get 50 K that's more than enough to pay for everything that we would need. And that was my goal. That's a really interesting plan. You gave yourself how long to write the 20 books, a couple of years, uh, 14 months. Jeez, fourteen months. Okay, that's that. Well, you see, the thing is, is if if you're doing it, we must be doing it full time then, because you you couldn't do that with a job, surely, could you? Uh, I had a consulting job, but yes, I was actually one of the reasons that I was able to write those three books so quickly is I'm a creative person, but my particular customers weren't requiring any creativity because they got bogged down in their own stuff for a couple months. So I'm sitting here with two or three months of need to create something, and this opportunity comes up, and so. I knew that they were coming back with a large project in middle of December and I needed these books out so I could test something. So, you know, I buckled down hard and wrote like a crazy person. So the premise in this, uh, I'm going to share this article, by the way, because it's great. This uh, one from the Authors Biz podcast. Um, mm-hmm. The premise of that was, this must seem like a long time ago now, uh, 90 days to $10,000 in one month. So this is, I guess, the mm-hmm. first, the tale of the first breakthrough that you had to hit that $10,000. Can 
Can you just talk me through how you hit that? Because that, frankly, is the dream for most people. Yeah, so book uh, month one, when we released those three books, I was making or made about $438, I think, gross or something like that. The second month, now we're releasing book four on December 15th, and all of a sudden, instead of making $7.5 a book, we're starting to go toward $100 or, or $50. A month. And then, like, the 18th, I was, I remember, I remember this. My wife and I were driving from our house in Texas up the freeway to, uh, up the 35 freeway to go to Windstar, which is a gambling casino right on the other side of the border between, te- you know, in Oklahoma, but from Texas. And so I decided, you know, I had this Facebook ad experience and I go ahead and write some little cheap $5 ads. Well, my sales explode. I'm a hundred, $150 a day. And I'm like, holy crap, you know, this thing is fantastic. So we had these four books and I'm starting to make this kind of money and I'm getting really excited and I'm thinking it's all in Facebook ads. And I think even that document talks about Facebook ads, but it wasn't until a few months later that I realized after, you know, ramping up Facebook ads and getting no appreciable increase in income and taking them back off and realizing, well, it could kill me if I stop them, that it was Amazon who, when they saw my fourth book come out and they saw sales on it for my fans, they pushed it the same day. I started the Facebook ads. So I didn't realize, I assumed the Facebook ads were the ones that were kicking my sales. But in the beginning of January, I was making $300 a day. Book five comes out um, somewhere around the 5th of January. And then I shoot up and now, you know, $333 is $10,000 a month. You know, I think I ended up with like 12000 a month or something. So how how do people find you see this this always feels like magic i've been at this you know for a while i've, I've actually just i've just had my best month ever because of getting a book bub which has uh, you know really helped but um mm-hmm. when, when people sort of talk about this kind of ignition with readers i always think well come on there's, there's got to be there's got to be something to that what what makes a book or a series of books fire like that um part of it is going to be uh, Okay, so here's kind of my thought on this. A beautiful cover will always get you one new reader. However, great characters and interactions inside the book, a great story will get them to sell you to three or four more. So it really, a lot of times I've had wives get their husbands to read it or boyfriends get their girlfriends to read it or friends. You know, it's very word of mouth and it has to do with the characters and the stories. The original covers were not doing me any help whatsoever. They were kind of limiting me, but it was good enough. The reviews were coming in. The people on the Facebook page were promoting it. So in this case, it really was a situation of the characters, the story. People came in expecting a vampire story and they end up with a science fiction story. But by that time, they liked Bethany Ann. And there you go. You know, it really was very organic. At what point did you you set this plan for you to write 20 books and then all of a sudden... Your uh, Amazon page is amazing. You just keep scrolling on and on and on and on. So, <laughs> I don't know where it ends. It's like a carousel. It goes on forever. But I mean, which is incredible. And congratulations on that. So, but I'm wondering, I'm wondering where then it went from me writing 20 books to maybe seeing other opportunities. Well, in I've always been a. So I'm at this point, right? So I released book one, and I realize, oh crap. I should reach out and find out what else I should be doing. I need a Facebook page. And, you know, these are the things that are going on. It's like, oh, I actually finished a book and I'm putting it up there. Now what? So I built all of that. And with my success moving forward, the fans are like, great, really wonderful. You spent four weeks. You did this book. You just released it three hours ago. When's the next one? I'm like, you sons of a bitch. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So what I did is I started reaching out and going, you know what? I also like these indie writers. And I would just name them. Here you go. This person, this person, this person. Bug them um, until my next book, in which case, please read that. So I'm doing this. And, and during this time, I had been on K-boards. And there had been some positive and some negative situations on the board. And I had, on book six, asked, actually, book five, book five, book six, I'd asked beta readers who had been helping me at this time to, was anyone interested in this writing thing that I was doing? And a few of them took me up. T.S. Paul was one of them. Um, Paul C. Middleton came. Actually, Paul C. Middleton, uh, he kind of like Martin Luther, he nailed his treatise on the door about swords and katanas. He was like pissed. And I was, you know, 
I asked him later, and he goes, you know, I've, I've uh, sent horrible, scathing sword comments to 12 authors. You were the only one who replied. <laughs> so, you know, I get these individuals and, and uh, a couple of others, one who never did something and, and one gentleman who did whose name escapes me at the moment. Sorry. But we go off and we start talking in the original 20 books to 50K Facebook group, right? So I, I name it. 20 books to 50K, and these four authors end up coming and talking, or four fans who were trying to be authors. So a couple of months later, as I'm about to get ready to go to my first Smarter Artist Summit two years ago, I, uh, I published my most recent book. I want to say it was probably book seven, and it's late at night, and I'm feeling exhausted, and I'm feeling pissed off. <laughs> and so I write because, you know, there's been a lot of attacks for success at that time. I don't know if K-Boards is still this way or not, but at that time it was. And so I was going to give them a good piece of my mind, what's now called, uh, what's now known as when I go on a rant. And um, fortunately, I deleted that when I went to sleep. And I get up the next morning, and I still want to write something. So I thought, you know what, I've helped four people. Maybe I can help four more. You know, I can I can juggle eight authors that I'm trying to help as I build this other situation. So I wrote on K-Boards the story of the what the success was of these four that I'm helping. And I said, if any of you, and I, I did this thing called What's Your Mountain? Because I recognize not all of us go into writing with the same intent of what we want to get out of it. And I just said, this is my mountain. I want to have fans that want to reread my books, and I want to make money. It's not an evil thing. And if this is something that you think you might want to do, I'm willing to help. Let's all join together in this, this Facebook group called 20 Books. And I remember driving from my grandmother's house into Austin and looking at, instead of eight people, we had 80 joining like in a day, two days. And I'm stressing out. So I'm having to call Scott, who is T.S. Uh, Paul, Scott Paul. And the double D's, Diana, Doreen, and, and friends going, hey, can you help me here? Because we ha- we're, we're blowing up. This is more than I ever expected, and I can't do it all. And at the Smarter Artist Summit, I'm able to meet Mark Leslie LeFave from Kobo. And I say, do you mind joining just so if people have questions about going wide, I can point them to you. And he was very gracious to join in and a few others. And so this is kind of the genesis, but it was always about helping others. So that's my 2016. It was a macro level effort. And so by the end of 2016, we can see that we're at 1,500, going to 2,000. And I'm like, you know what? A lot of people are saying that my success is special, like it's not duplicatable. And I was annoyed. And I'm like, I'm not a special writer, folks. It's not like, uh, you know, I'm no Hemingway by any stretch of the imagination. However, I think I could have something to teach. And I'm willing and had a need for more stories in my Cathedral universe I'm willing to do that and teach others to be in here. Um, so let me make 2017 the year of where I go micro, where I help individuals. And that's what started the collaboration stuff. And I'm really interested in that because um, when you have teamed up with people, I know you continue to team up with people. Um, is, it, is it like a supported mentorship or do they come, do they kind of have to jump through hurdles over hurdles and they're ready made, re- ready for you to go? Oh, gosh, no. Yeah, it's supported mentorship. Um, because the, certainly the explanation, explanation is I have a readership that I believe I understand. They want Michael Anderley type stuff. My job is in or our jobs, because there's multiples of us now doing this. But our job is to explain how an individual writer has to please that expected readership for tone, for emotion, for fun. You know, one of my big caveats to reading is I don't want to spend all day long on a tough job getting stressed out to come home and read a book where I'm just stressed out. And so we have certain things we do. I don't want to read books about people I don't know if I'm going to like or not. I want to like them, you know. So it's just my preference. And so we have to work with character. We have to work with plot pace. We have to work with releasing tension. All of those pieces are part of it, but the goal was always that, you know, book one, they get a lot of help, book two, not as much. By book three, they're kind of the training wheels come off, and they're able to continue moving on. And the benefit, of course, is that by readers finding their books with Cthulhu Cthulhu Universe, the hope is they will then go on to see what else they like of that author. Okay, so 
what are you looking at for for a writer? So presumably they've got to be writing in your genre, have they? Um, let me think about that. No, because Candy Crumb was a, more of a horror writer. The question is, sometimes, quite frankly, the question is whether or not they have the um, the humbleness to maybe think we have something to teach and the willingness to be taught this area. It doesn't mean they have to always, you know, we're not trying to create Michael clones. And that's one of the reasons, you know, the name is above mine on the books. Um, but we have learned that if we take brand new people who haven't written books and gone through the, the effort themselves, it brings uh, too much effort on our side to have to teach it. So we don't do that anymore. You must be working, or you must require some pretty tight deadlines within your business from people. So, you know, if, if somebody says, oh, I take two years to write a book, I'm, I'm taking it now. <laughs> they're, they're out, I take it. Well, yes. I mean, at that point, we, we'd only say they're out because the fans wouldn't support that. They'd be upset with us in that case. But we do have individuals that are um, that take longer than we typically take, right? So even myself right now, I'm going to be eight weeks between my 19th book and my 20th book kind of to give myself just a lot of time to handle the business side of things. Um, as, and then, of course, I've got like six weeks later, I'm going to be releasing two more books. So I've got whatever that is. If you had the two, 14 weeks to, to build, to do five books or three books. Um, but it just, it, that wouldn't work. I mean, we do stockpile them from time to time. So if it takes them longer, we'll set them aside and then do a rapid release schedule and we, then we have certain individuals who can only write so quickly because of family obligations or whatever the case is. And we just explain to them, just so you know, the money's going to become very little in between books one and two. That's just how it's going to fly. Um, we don't push people. We're not like you must have this book out on November the 18th or else. We don't do that. Okay. So, um, with T.S. Paul, I remember listening to his interview on Mark Dawson's podcast. And, uh -huh. and, and you could almost hear, I think it was James Blatch was, was interviewing him. You could always hear James Agast at the, I think, um, I think Scott was writing quite short books, if I remember rightly. Mm -hmm. And, and they were pretty rough. Uh, by rough, I mean, they were pretty unedited. And I think, you know, he, he seemed to break every single rule of, of, of writing in it. And I remember listening to that and thinking, you know, this is just an incredible, um, uh, model. Do you, do you think people get sort of too uptight about just polishing the thing and that they should really be more concentrated on launching? I think they need to be more interested in the story. Here's, here's the, um, so there's a, a taco shop, uh, Tex-Mex place, um, in South Lake, Texas that I go to called Austin's taco shop. And I'm, I'm in there and I'm, I'm reading Scott's story, his second one that he pitched, which is what became, um, his, his space series that, that you were listening to and I'm reading it. And it was from a standpoint of editing and grammar atrocious. We have multiple people talking in the same paragraph, um, commas, punctuations, all of this stuff is not there. And yet I'm engrossed in the story and I get to the end of how far he had written. And I'm like, you know, turning the, the digital page of going, where's the rest? And so um, hopefully this, you know, bleep it or whatever. But the answer is I sent back to him. I said, this is the shit. Give me this. That's what I want. And that's, you know, kind of what started the concept that eventually became the, the give me the first 3000 words. And if you can't make me beg you for more, you're not on the right path. You see, that's really different from the traditional model, isn't it? Because I don't think I think I don't think you'd even get past the first hundred words if you had mm -hmm. grammar, you know, spelling uh, issues. I think somebody would just dismiss it out of hand. And but they're missing a trick, aren't they? Because you don't have to be grammar perfect to be a great storyteller. Correct, and and I it's the, a somewhat metaphor for it is you know when my wife met me, she looked at this guy with keys coming out of his pocket because I didn't do this very well and, and just basically not that presentable. But she's like, you're a great guy. You have what's important in your heart and everything else. I can clean up the rest. <laughs> and if you have a great story, you can clean up the rest. But you can't grammar a bad story into a compelling one. It's just not going to work. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what does your your personal writing um, schedule look like now? now? Now you've got all these other things and projects going on. It must be like sort mm -hmm. of wrestling a hydra at the moment, isn't it? All these 
projects going on. How how do you you know create writing time within that for you to keep doing your books? All the way up to last weekend, it's been me having to just hit a deadline. Oh, I need to write. I need to go do this. I need to write. The fans want this stuff. Or, um, you know, just like anyone else is like, oh, my gosh, my income for my personal books is going down. I need to get another one out there. But what's happened in the last four days is with the uh, the blow up from the conference and the relationships and the new things going on, I'm looking to writing like, can I please write? Because it takes me away from all this other stuff. And yet it's still business. I don't have to feel guilty for hiding from the other stuff. So, um, you know, my next book is due December 25th, which for me is forever. But I'm going to go ahead and start writing it now just because I want to get involved. And I'll probably have it finished the earliest of anything I've ever done. What does your um, advertising look like now? Now you've got all these books. Do they um, propel themselves now or, or do you still have to give them the push? We still give pushes, and I would say that our advertising is atrocious from figuring out which one's part of it's working. I can tell you that our Amazon ads one time, I was changing some things, went away for a few days, came back whenever I'm like, why is Amazon, you know, why is, uh, Amazon charging my American Express so much money? And I go back and look, and one particular ad had taken off, and they, it's like one day was $80, the next day was 150 and the third day was $330 for one ad. And I'm like, damn, people. And then I go and look at um, over on the actual um, ranking of that particular book. And it started off at like 9,900 and then 6,000 and then was down in 3,000s. And so I knew that the Amazon ads can work, but whether or not they're going to be financially viable is another question. We've looked at Google ads. We've done Facebook ads. And we've spent a lot of money. But I don't think we, you know, let's say it's, it goes back to that half of all of my marketing works. I just don't know which half. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the present, the problem with books, um, that there's no margin in them. Uh, you know, it's something to sell. We, we just have no margin to play with. It's we've either got to make a sale or we're losing money pretty quickly. Um, that's, well, not true in a series, right? So mm. I didn't, haven't done the calculations recently, but it's probably about if I can, for every person who buys book one of Bethany and I can assume based on the numbers that I'll get 25 bucks out of them. Oh, so that's interesting that you've, you've reached that point now where you know how much you need, you could pay to acquire a customer, which is quite an advanced metric, isn't it? Yes, it's there. And I know that, you know, people who come in and read, um, let's say Lee Clark's extension myth and, in that one, that's kind of far future, and it references the Empress or the Queen, and then they're like, well, who is this character they're talking about? Well, now they can go back to the beginning of mine to read 19 books in her series. Okay, so can, can we put a number on it then? How much will you pay to acquire a new reader? Do you know that? Or can you tell me uh, that? It's probably 10 or 12 bucks, but um, no, I don't actually know. That's We have two things in my company that we're working on diligently for the next, well, what's now left, four months, four and a half months. And that is art, because it seems like categorically, it is one of the hardest things to get a good process down for and get constrain your costs and advertising, both on book, you know, BookBub, not the the big one, but the BookBub ads and uh, Amazon and Facebook. And so we're working on those four. And I hope, you know, if we talk again in four months, I'll be able to tell you, yeah, we nailed it. We finally got da- got it down. Do you play the um, – I've just had my first BookBub, and it's been, it's been excellent. Do you play the BookBub game? I don't think I've ever heard you and, and BookBub in, in the same sentence, actually. No, um, I've tried it off and on, and it, it's, kind of, it's kind of this thing. Justin, a collaborator, uh, got one for one of his series with me. Um, didn't do phenomenally well. Uh, they don't really have a dystopian vampire genre. Um, so that one – it wasn't didn't impress me a whole lot, but really kind of what happened is I know that a lot of uh, artists and authors or authors have been propelled to success with BookBub and gone on. And I think that's fantastic. I never was. And so it kind of got to a point where the indie outlaw in me is like, you know what? Screw them. I didn't need them to get started. I don't need to be my success. I'm a top 30 author on Amazon. Never had a BookBub. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. But you are using the ads, you said. 
Uh, and, yeah, I'm not stupid. Um, <laughs> I'm just, you know, an outlaw. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How are they going for you? Because I had a little play with them, and it's one of those things where you think, right, okay, I've lost a bit of money now. I need to either take some time to learn how to do them properly, you know, or, or I'm not going to use them. How are you getting on with them? Uh, a little bit better, but it's definitely, I've noticed that um, sometimes if I'll start ads or stop them and then start them again, for whatever reason, BookBub will kick them in, and for like 48 hours, 36 to 48 hours, they will rocket my um, my sales up considerably for the next two days, and then they kind of peter out, kind of like you know you just you don't have enough depth to them, depth d e p t h of, uh, and that's just me setting up the ads right because it's hard to say yes, go to um, paranormal and do do well. So you need to target individual authors. And then certain authors like, uh, let's say, Anne Rice, on certain days, my Anne Rice USA or US will do phenomenal. And then the very next day, I just got porked, you know. (laughs) So you you just never know what's going on. They just recently started doing cost per click. And I started three ads last night and I started them at 30 cents a click. And I think I got one impression. (laughs) So, you know, I before we started this podcast, I jumped them all up to 37 cents. And, and I know that my typical cost per click on the other ads, which are by the thousand, are in the 58 to 75 cent range. But my feeling is, I don't know this to be technically true. My feeling is that, you know, the best, uh, the best click is going to be on Amazon, but BookBubs is going to be behind that because they are readers. And then the last is Facebook, unless you really know how to dial in your market. Yeah. Okay. Great. And um, the other thing is, is are any of you or your wider writing team are you using BookFunnel or InstaFreebie? Do you get anything out of those at all? Um, we do use BookFunnel for our just-in-time team, and I've seen Damon now at uh, a couple of uh, conferences at Nink and here in Vegas. And I, I was, in fact, <laughs> I was begging him for a new feature set that uh, I won't mention just because he he hasn't committed to doing it yet. But so we use BookFunnel, and I really love Damon and talking to him. He's a neat guy if you ever get a chance to do that. InstaFreebie I've talked to a few times. I've never used them personally to build a list. We've done marketing. My my assertion um, with InstaFreebie from the beginning was, why are we getting an email list of people who want free books, right? That was my theory. And we did our first marketing push where SM Boyce, Sarah Boyce, checked my list versus her list versus Martha Carr's list. And from that standpoint, Martha Carr's uh, list, which was like 6,000 names on Insta Freebie, was pretty much trash. And I thought, you know what? We figured it out. However, we um, also used JL Hendricks' list and did it again. Her list was considerably better than Martha's. And so if you look at it, her uh, JL's list from Insta Freebie. If you look at the people as the percentage of how many were probably quality, like would buy books, it was as large as my list, which I hadn't used InstaFreebie for, and she built it a lot quicker. So there is a way to use InstaFreebie um, and weed out, if you will, those that are strictly looking for free. Yeah, yeah. And you've got to, I think you've got to be careful with the numbers. A lot of people get excited about the numbers, but I think you've got to ditch the trash, haven't you? And you've got to, you've got to yes. nurture the quality, ditch the trash, and not be scared to do that. Yes, you definitely have to be able to do that. And and I think that there's value in accomplishing it. I personally also wanted to try doing insta-freebie stuff where you just put up the this the read ahead and a link to your book on Amazon to find out would that work. And just skip the whole email part whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. The the other thing I do, I, I actually host insta freebie giveaways and I use it to build targeted lists on Facebook. So I cookie all the people who mm-hmm. go. So you could build a targeted list of about seven and a half thousand on an insta freebie giveaway. And also I get other authors to drive traffic and I sell it one of my books. I have one of the books for sale on the page. So I use it to drive traffic to one of my books, but they all build a list. So th- I found a couple of ways to make it work, but I agree with you that the freebie seekers are not, not good quality leads, unfortunately. Yeah, so I what you just spoke about is definitely an advanced tactic, right? You're talking about adding the little pixels on the pages, and that's that's damned work, man. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't believe the size of the list I got when I did it. I thought, ooh, this is the way to do this, you know, to, to run the things and to get the pixels of the targeted readers. So that's my top tip if you're doing Insta Freebie. Um, 
We must talk about um, 20 Books Vegas and 20 Books London. I'm signed up for London. I, I think I was the first Ooh. person on the list, actually, uh, for 20 Books uh, London. Um, uh, that's, my, that's my claim to fame. So you've, you've just finished 20 Books Vegas at the time of recording this. H- how did it go? Oh, my gosh. It was fantastic. You asked me uh, before we started, how am I? I'm like, I'm still out of it. We had uh, 430 plus um, authors there. Uh, a lot of people loving it. Um, there, there was live streamed. Craig did an amazing job, and I'll just say the same thing I said, you know, hundreds of times. Craig put this on. I just basically had to show up. So it was. Uh, I've heard from people, multiple people, who had been to multiple conferences. One lady told me, Michael, I've been to you know conferences since 2001. This is the best put-on conference she had ever been to. Um, and that is strictly to Craig and the volunteers and everybody willing to put in a helping hand because it is a nonprofit conference. You know, any money that was generated above and beyond, it went to the Kindles for the military effort. And so it's just people digging deep. It's people who wanted to help each other because they come from that, um, that concept inside of 20 books to 50K, the group, right? And it's like if, if you don't want to share, you're probably not in that group. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've been plugging it since uh, it was announced, actually, because I, I come from an internet marketing background. I used to pay uh, $5,000 for an internet marketing event. And then mm-hmm. what, what is it in the UK? 165 or something like that? It's it's yeah. so little money compared to what I'm used to paying. And you're going to be sat next to authors who are six-figure authors. You, you know, that you, you can't buy an experience like that. It's just incredible opportunity, isn't it? Yeah, that was that's actually the biggest piece of it. It's like, yes, we're going to have what we hope is really compelling teaching. That's the core. But if you want to make your money out of it, you just need to meet people. I had, um, because of the conference, we had some events before the weekend itself. And I had met Stephen Lee and Jonathan Brazy on a trip to Nellis Air Force Base, which is out here. And just that trip alone made any of my effort for the rest of the week paid for. And I hadn't even been in the conference yet. And so Jonathan Brazy, I find out, is on SIFWA, Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. He's part of them. And, by the way, it doesn't have to be America. You can be worldwide and and join. And so, uh, you know, we're getting a bunch of us from LMBPN to join as well. And so, you know, it's just the the relationships that you learn and that you create and the opportunities are just about meeting the people. And so, of course, I'll be there and – it's funny. It, part of the reason that it's it's price it is is because London and near London is definitely a nonprofit. Air, is is a not is a, how do I do this? Is like a double negative. Is not a not for profit area. It's freaking expensive. Yeah, uh, London hotels are deadly. I, I booked in at the um, event hotel at first, and it's a lot. It was a lot of money, and um, I'm flying down for it from the top of the UK. And uh, then I discovered a lovely little travel lodge, which is a, a, a very reasonable chain. And it's just in the village outside the hotel. So a load of us from my podcast, are all, are all, we're all over there. So we'll be having a little, oh, excellent. little networking group over in the next village. But it's only like, you know, five minutes walk. It's no distance at all. But it's, I think it's 90 pounds compared to, I think it was nearly two, three hundred pounds, I think, for the hotel. It's quite, uh, yeah, you can't get anything cheap in London. It's just just the way it is, unfortunately. But um, uh, you're coming into Heathrow, aren't you, as the airport, which will be the most convenient airport, I think. Mm-hmm. Or are you coming to Gatwick or Heathrow? You're coming to Gatwick, maybe, eh? I'm not sure. I mean, my wife and I were doing the schedule for 2018, and I think we're flying in Thursday to be there a day early, you know, try to get through jet lag. Of course, the event itself is on Saturday, Sunday, right? Yes, that's right. So... We'll probably try to put on some event Friday, or we will be putting on an event Friday, LMBPN Publishing, my company. And so we've got to get the details of what that's going to do. But we, we invite all of the just-in-time and beta readers, and then we invite you know, those that we know and uh, those speaking, and just you know, go have a good time. That's fantastic. So um, bearing in mind this is running a, a, right at the beginning of a brand new year and uh, 20 Books London will be almost upon us when this interview runs. Um, mm-hmm. What are the kind of highlights that you've got planned for London? What kind of speakers have you got? Oh, um, it, uh, this which again, great question. But Brian Meeks, I believe Richard Fox is, or, or Chris Fox is coming. Um, it, it, quite a few of the people that were here will mm. be there. Yeah. Um, or... I should say maybe Craig is going to do uh, his pre- uh, Chris Fox's presentation, but it's uh, I apologize that's really Craig he handles all of that. But I'll be speaking. Craig will be speaking. 
Um, we'll be there to answer questions. And usually if we don't answer like a high enough level question for you, just ask us. We stick around. You know, that's why we, well, that's why we're there. You know, we're not there to make money. Yeah, well, and, and tell tell me about the networking because I remember when I started in internet marketing years ago. So uh, somebody that I went along with said, "You know, actually, you don't sit. In, most people in internet marketing don't sit in the sessions. All the business is done, you know, in the lounge and in the bar where people are networking and talking." So um, I know when I, I interviewed Craig that he said that there'd be plenty of time, uh, you know, to talk and to mix because that's so important. So uh, what what about that mix? You know, the learning and the, the networking. Where, where would you put that? What's what's important? Um. Um. Okay, so Craig spoke to me this morning, Michael Cooper, by the way, on which was well-received. This latest one is going to be joining us as well. I have his book right in front of me. I'm just holding it up to the microphone. <laughs> I'm just reading it now, yeah. <laughs> I don't need to listen to you. I got Michael Cooper's book right here. <laughs> yeah, and so, um, he's good, just, though, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's amazing. I think Brian Meeks is going to try to show up, and it was, it was interesting. If you watch the podcast or the, watch the event, you'll see that at the very end when you have these questions come up, that Brian Meeks is like, you know what? I love Las Vegas and I'm going to stay here. And everyone kind of laughs and he goes, no, no, I'm serious. And I find out later that uh, uh, after everyone leaves, he comes up, we talk for a minute. He's actually looking to get a place in the, my building, in my condo building here in Vegas. So I'm like, you know, going to have Brian Meeks in the house. So I really hope that uh, that, that works out. I have but, Brian's book to my right-hand side too. It's <laughs> un- underneath Michael's. <laughs> Yeah, I know. So Michael's on uh, working on Facebook ads, and then Brian's is on AMS ads. And um, so, you know, it's the marketing. It's also some of the other stuff. And, and to be honest with you, oh, the percentage. Personally, the um, I've taken away things that I can learn, right? That's incredibly important. If you had to choose one or the other, go with the relationships. Because, I mean, just uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier, see how many collaborations I have. A lot of that was started with relationships, and those relationships begat other ones. So it's it's so important to your career. Um, you know, people that are you're able to just pick it up and, and call them. You know, I've spoken now with Brian Meeks, and, you know, I know that uh, now I have his phone number. So if I have an AMS ad problem, I've met the man. I don't have to feel like, oh, you know, I've seen him on Facebook, but I'm not sure. And you get a real, you know, you get a tell of what's going on. So personally, I think the relationships are, are the most powerful aspect. Craig is going to make sure we've got plenty of time in between some of the sessions for you to mill around. And I understand that a lot of people are like, hey, I'm introverted. But what you're going to find is that most of the people there can be introverted. And because everyone seems to be mingling, you always have something in common. The way I explained it one time was when I went to the first Smarter Artist Summit, which was about six months or so after I started writing, when I walked into it, I didn't have to talk to people, but I knew that I felt or that I had found my tribe. For the first time, 47 years, I was with other people like me. And if you are introverted, all you've got to do is say what you're writing. Because, I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's the opening question for everybody, isn't it, really? And everybody's going to be happy to answer it. Yeah, and here's something that we also figured out. So uh, we're, we're going to have your name tags, and everyone's got one. And usually they're turned around to where you can't see the right side of them. If you're really smart, you'll put your covers on a shirt and wear a shirt with your covers on them. And we'll all recognize it for that. Put your covers on the front and people will go, oh, if they're in your genre, because they're always looking, you know, you have a better shot of being done that way. Like, you know, I was talking with Jonathan Brazy. I did not know at the time. I did not associate his name with the UFMC series. But as soon as he mentioned the fact that he had written, you know, UFMC one and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, I know who you are. You were on a podcast six months ago. I was walking through the airport. You were talking about this problem, and I have that same problem with mine, and this is how I had to – and then I'm showing him the new cover going, this is how I fixed what you were talking about that I was having trouble with. Your story is an amazing story, and having just come back from Vegas, you must have uh, felt a sense of pride that you've birthed this amazing community from what was just supposed to be originally a series of three books. To be honest with you, sometimes I feel like I feel disconnected from that Michael Anderley and who I am. So I am very happy with the success of everything. And to whatever degree, it, it, there's pride, I'm sure. Um, but at the same time, I also kind of feel like, you know, that's that person. And so with that said, where is there to go now? I, I said to you, what you know, your books just look like a carousel. I, I can't tell where it begins and ends it's so long you know what what happens next for you 
Um, we have two universes, Kytherian Universe and Oristharian Universe, and we have lots of – we're building those out with additional series, different collaborations, different things that are going on. Um, we'll be birthing new ones in 2018. We are looking as a company trying to see if we can figure out how to get insurance for our authors and ourselves, um, which is a challenge here in the United States to do that if you're not out you know, in your own company. Um, we have over 50 audiobooks in the last uh, eight or nine months that we've produced. We expect to go to 100 plus. We have, you know, world class level audio narrators that are part of us. And so we're building that out. And, you know, I, I expect to double our business in 2018, I hope. It's a tremendous success story. Congratulations on it. And thank you thank very you. much for creating this wonderful community. I'm in there every day, you know, learning <laughs> from, from people and finding out new ways of doing things. And I can't wait till London. Um, thank you very much for speaking to us on the podcast today, Michael. I appreciate the honor of speaking. So thank you very much for, for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week. <laughs>